KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, what is Israel's endgame in its war with Hamas? Over the past 50 years, it's tried two radically different strategies in Gaza, and neither succeeded. Fintan O'Toole will explain that history. He teaches at Princeton, and he's an advising editor at the New York Review of Books, where he's been writing about Israel, Hamas, and Gaza. Also, the broad Democratic victories in several states in Tuesday's elections, Ohio, Virginia, Kentucky, Pennsylvania, came right after a series of very bad polls for Joe Biden, especially a new New York Times poll that shows Trump leading in five out of six swing states. Could Biden's poll numbers really be that bad? Harold Meyerson will comment. But first, Tuesday's elections. It was a good day for Democrats. For our analysis and comment, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for The Nation. His most recent book is It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism, co-authored by Bernie Sanders. John, welcome back. It's an honor to be with you, brother. Well, the biggest issue on Tuesday was the right to abortion. It's been a potent issue for Democrats ever since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, even in deeply Republican states like Kansas and Montana. Strategists have been saying it's one of the keys to a Democratic victory a year from now. Let's start with Ohio, which has become a Republican state since the rise of Trump. This week, voters in Ohio could vote yes to add a right to reproductive freedom to the state constitution. Republicans did everything they could to confuse voters on this one. What happened in Ohio? Uh, voters were not confused. They, they <laughs> voted very, very strongly for abortion rights, um, for a, a really solid defense of abortion rights. Doesn't do everything that some activists would like, but, but it uh, essentially moves the issue out of the hands of the legislature, puts it into the state constitution, and for all practical purposes, defends the right to choice going forward. Um, that's huge. And uh, it was a victory by a very wide margin, very, very strong, solid victory that stretched across the state. And that's an important thing. Um, I was a newspaper editor in Ohio some years ago. And I, I remember that Ohio still had areas where you had a lot of blue collar Democrats who were not necessarily pro-choice. And um, when I looked at the map today, it was fascinating because uh, many of those counties where you might've thought of in that category had shifted over to a pro-choice stance. There are still rural counties that were not, uh, but I mean, you look at that map and it was a, a very, very encouraging one for, I, I think for pro-choice forces and also frankly for Democrats, because um, this is an issue so closely associated with Democrats. And one of the subtleties, which we'll talk about in a moment, is that abortion rights is becoming uh, more than just a referendum issue. It's becoming a ballot line issue for candidates who are running. Uh, we saw that definitely, I think, in Kentucky and in Virginia um, and in several other states uh, when, when you look at what happened yesterday. And so uh, this is a big deal, what's going on. And I think it is especially important for Sherrod Brown, the sitting senator from Ohio, 
who's up for re-election last, next year, one of the most vulnerable Democrats by any measure, because he's running in Ohio, a state that voted by eight points for Trump in 2016 and 2020. And it's very notable that this morning, Sherrod Brown tweeted out video of all of his potential opponents, noting that all of them support a national ban on abortion. So it's pretty clear that A, Sherrod Brown liked the results of the referendum last night, and B, he intends to take that issue forward into 2024. Another key election that's centered on abortion rights, as you have mentioned, was in Virginia. This was not a referendum, but uh, their regular election to all 140 seats of the General Assembly. Virginia, of course, now is a Democratic-leaning state in presidential elections. It has a relatively popular Republican governor, Glenn Youngkin, who has some national political ambitions. Republicans were hoping to capture both houses of the state legislature and win total Republican control of the state. And Youngkin is well aware of the damage Republicans have suffered on abortion rights in you know half a dozen other states up to last night. And he offered what he thought was a strategic compromise that national Republicans could make into a winning message after losing over and over on this issue. And that was a 15-week ban on abortion with exemptions for rape, incest, and the life of the mother. This was the Republican program in Virginia. Democrats ran on protecting abortion rights and warned that a 15-week ban was not a compromise. What happened in Virginia? Well, first off, I'm going to quibble with some of your question. You uh, you referred to... Uh... Glenn Youngkin as relatively popular. I think we might change that now to relatively unpopular because he had a horrible night. He went into a uh, an evening where I think a lot of folks thought there was a real chance that he was going to get trifecta control, control of the governorship in both houses of the legislature, which would have allowed him to advance the whole of his agenda. And remember, that is a agenda that certainly includes uh, assaults on abortion rights, but also has that so that whole parents' rights thing, you know, like taking power away from, from communities and having the state come down, you know, all sorts of ways to tell you that uh, you can ban books and things like that. And, um, and so Yonkin, I think, was feeling very confident. He put himself way out front. Um, the, the joke is that, that uh, you know, if, if he won on this Tuesday night, that was the beginning of the Yonkin for President campaign. Well, he didn't win. That was the end of the Yonkin for President. <laughs> and um, and we now have a situation in Virginia where abortion rights are going to be protected at a level that uh, we have not seen up to this point. Uh, I mean, it's really, a, it's a big deal. And the other big deal about it, John, is the people who were elected in Virginia I mean, there's a lot of young, progressive breakthrough candidates, a lot of firsts, um, the first trans member of the state Senate, uh, the first uh, uh, openly gay black male member of the uh, uh, state house, uh, you know, and a lot of other, you know, young, bright uh, candidates who I think are gonna really shake up the Virginia legislature. And if I can add one other thing, Virginia has historically been a, a, a bad state for labor, uh, a right to work state. And uh, as these Democrats are on the march, you're seeing a lot of young pro-labor Democrats get elected. And I think that's gonna begin to shift some of the landscape there as well. And I also wanna talk about 
Pennsylvania, which had a different kind of election in which abortion rights figured. This was uh, a vote on a state Supreme Court justice. These are usually very low profile things. Nobody really knows who's who in these races. Uh, the Democratic candidate was a, was a Superior Court judge named Dan McCaffrey. He campaigned as a defender of abortion rights. Republicans spent a huge amount of money to get their anti-abortion candidate elected to this open seat on the state Supreme Court. The state Supreme Court in Pennsylvania might also be involved in certifying the state's vote in the 2024 election. Uh, so this is a really important one that's below the radar of most ordinary Americans. What happened in the Pennsylvania Supreme Court election? Well, um, once again, and I think we're starting to sound a little like a broken record here, uh, abortion rights proved to be a very powerful issue, and the candidate who supported abortion rights won. Um, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court had was already a Democratic court, right? They, they had a majority. If the Republican had won this seat, though, it would have gotten close, right? You would have ended up in, a in like, I think, a 4-3. Four, 4-3. Three. Four three. Yeah, it would have ended up in a situation where it was closer. And then if one Democrat went shaky right? Things could, could shift or if somebody was missing on a particular day. This really solidifies uh, the Supreme Court as a, a democratic court, as a court that is supportive of abortion rights. And again, that on a host of other issues, labor rights, education issues, um, other social issues, um, this is going to be a more liberal court. And so in Pennsylvania, it was a breakthrough issue. And it's one of the, the subtleties when we talk about abortion rights as an issue, John, that we should bring into the mix. And that is that abortion rights is winning. It's a winning issue right now. Um, but when it wins, it opens the door for a whole host of other progressive issues as well. And we've seen that in, I think you saw that in Pennsylvania, saw that in Virginia, I think you saw it in Kentucky. So this is, this is um, a, a changing political landscape driven by one issue, but also What's relevant there is that there's a coalition of people that are backing abortion rights. And when abortion rights win, a lot of the members of that coalition, supporters of immigrant rights, supporters of labor rights, supporters of public education, they win as well. And abortion was also a key issue in Kentucky, a deeply red state. Mm -hmm. Trump won Kentucky by 26 points in 2020. But Kentucky does have a popular Democratic governor who was up for re-election, Andy Bashir. Republican candidate for governor was a protege of Mitch McConnell, who defended Kentucky's total ban on abortion. What happened in Kentucky? Well, uh, again, the broken record, John, uh, <laughs> Kentucky uh, voted for the uh, pro-choice candidate. And here's what's interesting about Kentucky. The, you know, it's a border state, and it is a state that has trended Republican. Um, it is also the kind of state where historically Democratic consultants and people like Bill Clinton would have told you, kind of run, run to the center, be a little more like a Republican light. Don't mention some of these hot button social issues, avoid, you know, kind of controversy and maybe you can slide through. Andy Bashir didn't do that. He ran as a pro-choice candidate. He had ads about abortion on air as part of his campaign. He also ran as a candidate who had vetoed an anti-trans bill and talked about that and talked about it from a moral standpoint. He felt that it was important to protect kids who are in, in you know, challenging situations. Um, and then he also went out when the UAW went on strike, 
he joined the UAW picket line and and brought him donuts. Um, and and so, although I think there's going to be a lot of effort to portray Bashir as a moderate, and he is in many ways a, a more moderate Democrat, but you know he won pretty much on on Joe Biden's agenda. Uh, he won pretty much on on a national democratic agenda in a border state, and I think that's a real lesson for Democrats. If they compromise, if they go cautious, it's unlikely they're going to mobilize their base as effectively as they need to to win in some of these tougher contests. But frankly, if they go in there as an appealing candidate and say pretty strong, pretty bold, pretty important things, um, there's a real chance to win. And Bashir won very solidly. One more that uh, I, I want to talk about. Uh, Maine had a referendum on public power. We've talked about it here. We did a segment with Bill McKibben. This yeah. was a ballot measure to end private ownership of the state's uh, utility monopolies and combine them in a publicly owned firm called Pine Tree Power. Uh, Bill McKibben here argued the, that would create excellent opportunities for the transition to wind and solar. Uh, the power companies are deeply unpopular. They turn off the power for some like 10% of the population every year. But they spent something like 20 times more, more than the public power advocates did. What happened to the Pine Tree Power Initiative in Maine on Tuesday? Now we got to put a different record on now, John. And, um, and that is the one that, that says that money can win elections. Um, and I don't think that's going to be a surprise to listeners to, to this program, because money is very powerful in politics. It's not the only definitional reality. What we see are there are other factors. But in Maine, uh, the power companies came in with a sufficient amount of money and a sufficient scare tactic uh, to upend the what was what was actually a, a very, very good idea and a very, very good initiative. And, you know, look, this is something that that we've got to recognize around the country. Uh, we have developed uh, a kind of a network of donors that can come through on particular issues and for particular candidates in election cycles. Uh, there needs to be, especially on environmental issues, there's got to be more of a of a focus and more of a of a commitment. Uh, to come in if we're going to be stuck in this horrible money and politics system uh, to help on, on issues like this. And it, it's something to be conscious of going forward. But I give the Mainers credit for you know raising this issue. This is one of the oldest, most fundamental issues in American politics, which is who controls power, who controls water, who controls transportation systems. A hundred years ago, Robert M. LaFollette from my state ran for president of the United States on essentially a public power platform. It's still a good idea, and uh, if you get if you have setbacks in particular places, that doesn't mean that you should give up on it. It means that you should find new and, and better ways to win. Of course, after Tuesday, everyone is looking to 2024. You already talked about Sherrod Brown's campaign for re-election to the Senate in Ohio, crucially important to us. I want to say a word here about Arizona where uh, a coalition of uh, Planned Parenthood, NARAL, the ACLU, and other groups are gathering signatures right now for an initiative 
that would put abortion rights into the state constitution in Arizona, and this would be on the November 2024 ballot. Seems mm -hmm. very likely they will succeed at doing this. The people who are doing it really know what they're doing. And that, of course, is not only a presidential election in Arizona, a key swing state, uh, but it will be the time when voters decide whether to replace Kirsten Sinema with progressive Democrat Ruben Gallego or the uh, Trump nutcase, let's call her Carrie Lake. Any thoughts about Arizona going forward? Well, first and foremost, I think we should be kinder to nuts. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but uh, look, at, at, the, at the end of the day, uh, this is going to be something we're going to see in places all over the country. And the fact of the matter is that uh, pro-abortion rights referendums are now seven for seven, winning in red states, swing states, you know, pretty much wherever you put it on, you're likely to win. Arizona is precisely the kind of state where it would win. It, it, once you get it on the ballot, it's going to win. It'll probably win big. Um, that will mobilize people. It's going to be a real factor. I think it does have a very big significance for the presidential race, because remember, um, Arizona was one of the states that really decided the 2020 race by a very small margin. And um, I think it's going to have a, a great significance in a couple of other areas, too. Uh, you mentioned the Senate race. Senate race is complex because you're going to have Cinema and Gallegos both running as uh, pro-choice candidates if they both run. If Cinema drops out and becomes ambassador to the wine country of California, um, <laughs> then then that will be different. But uh, but it it should have some impact on the Senate race. It's also going to have an impact on congressional races, um, and uh, and I think frankly it's likely to have an impact on state legislative races. And that's a big deal because they've had a real battle in that state for control of the legislature. They have a Democratic governor now. So, um, you know, look, uh, this is the fact. There were foolish pundits who thought that abortion rights was going to be a sort of a, a one trick pony. Right. It would in 2022, it might be a factor, but it would disappear very quickly. Then in the spring of 2023, when it had a huge role in the Wisconsin Supreme Court race, they said, well, yeah, that, but that's that's probably the end of it. Then throughout 2023, as it has influenced special elections for state legislative seats, people have said, well, yeah, yeah, but that's that's just a one-off. That's just that. Now we've had another cycle, a major cycle, where it's proven to be, if anything, more influential as an issue. And anybody that thinks it's not going to be a big issue through 2024 is a fool. It, this is a, abortion rights. The defense of abortion rights is an issue that mobilizes voters, that uh, gets them to the polls, and especially that has resonance with young voters who are critical for Democrats. So what they're doing in Arizona is common sense politically, um, and it won't be the only state. John Nichols, read him at thenation.com. Thank you, John. This is great. Thanks, brother. It's a pleasure to be with you. One more thing. It's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. After Tuesday's election, it looks like St. Paul will have the first all-woman city council in its history and a very progressive city council. Of the six members elected this week, two were endorsed by Twin Cities DSA, and all six had the support of the organizing powerhouse Take Action Minnesota Political Fund which describes itself as a multiracial people's organization building power to change who decides and who benefits in our democracy and our economy. 
the number one issue in St. Paul right now, rent control. This has been your Minnesota Moment, a regular feature of this broadcast. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. The big Democratic victories in several states on Tuesday, Ohio, Virginia, Kentucky, Pennsylvania, came right after a series of very bad polls for Biden were published, especially a new New York Times poll showing Trump leading in five out of six swing states. Could Biden's poll numbers really be that bad? And if so, what is to be done? For comment and analysis, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, according to the New York Times poll, Trump is ahead of Biden right now by at least four percentage points. This is registered voters in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Arizona, Georgia, and Nevada, all states that Biden won in 2020. In the swing states, Biden leads only in Wisconsin and only by a little. Of course, if that's the way the election goes a year from now, Trump will be president again. Just to look at the specifics for one minute, the winning Democratic coalition going back to Obama in 2008 is women, young people, and people of color. That's the coalition that got Biden elected in 2020. All of those groups are significantly less enthusiastic about Biden right now. Women still favor Biden, but men preferred Trump by a much greater margin. The real shocker was voters under 30 still favor Biden, but only by a single percentage point. And among people of color, Biden's lead among Latino voters is down to single digits digits and among black voters they found 22 percent support for trump in the swing states now 22 percent is very low but it's higher than anything seen for a republican running for president in modern times so my question my first question for you, you is could biden's poll numbers really be that bad especially in view of tuesday's wins for democrats the short answer i regret to say is yes uh, in part, uh, it tracks other polls released in the last week. CNN uh, had a national poll that showed uh, Trump beating Biden by, uh, I think it was around four points, uh, maybe 49, 49 to 45. Yeah, four points, uh, which they released last night. And it included, uh, when you broke it down, declines in exactly the same demographic categories that the New York Times poll showed. And then t- on Wednesday, we saw a, uh, a poll in the Los Angeles Times of, of California voters uh, by a very good pollster and a very large poll for one state, like 6,000 people polled, that showed for the first time in ultra blue California, Biden's disapproval ratings now exceed his approval ratings for the first time during his presidency. Again, featuring declines in all those demographic categories uh, stipulated uh, in uh, the the New York Times 
poll. And also, uh, I think the California poll is the first one to show a real democratic disaffection about Biden's position in the ongoing uh, Israel-Palestine conflict as well. So at the moment, Joe Biden is in what might be called a doom loop in which his unpopularity for a whole host of reasons, but no doubt very much related to his age, is in a complete contrast to the results that Democrats have been getting uh, in elections, not just this week, but really over the past year. I would just highlight one other thing in that CNN poll that's particularly doom-laden. 51% of voters say there is no chance they would vote for Joe Biden. I mean, that's what they say now. There's a year to go. There's a campaign. But that's something that is a terrible result. One rule of American politics is that re-election campaigns are always about the incumbent. So instead of saying, well, why do people like Trump so much all of a sudden? The real question is, why don't they like Joe Biden? Because that's what this is really about. Biden in 2020 got 77 million votes, more than any other candidate in American history. He was running against the incumbent. He was indeed. Now, the Biden campaign will doubtless say, hey, there are two incumbents running this, this time around. And you folks, parentheses, the American people, close parentheses, you folks haven't been uh, paying much attention to every utterance of Donald Trump lately. And we're going to make sure that you actually listen to this nutcase. Uh, I suspect uh, push comes to shove. That is going to be the major focus of the Biden campaign going forward. There was one very bright spot in the New York Times poll. Let's emphasize that there is one year to go of this campaign. And let's ask, what could happen in a year? Well, lots of things could happen. One of the most important things that could happen is Trump could be convicted and sentenced for felonies, especially in that trial in D.C. that begins on January 6th, which is, you know, 10 months, 11 months before the election. The New York Times poll actually asked this question. If Trump is convicted and sentenced, would you still vote for him for president? 6% of voters in the six swing states said they would then switch their votes to Biden. That would be enough to get Biden elected. Right. I actually don't think that if Trump is convicted in the other charges uh, that have been brought against him, the documents case in Florida, uh, and 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 so forth, that that's really going to affect things. But convicted of essentially calling out an insurrection uh, against uh, the constitutional order, against Congress, uh, and frankly, against the American public in terms of determining, uh, you know, the winner of the 2020 election, that will, I think, take a toll, not on, you know, the hardcore Republicans, because most of them, amazingly, believe that Trump may actually have won the election, but certainly on voters in the middle. Whether that's going to spur the greater turnout among uh, disaffected uh, working class minorities and others who normally vote Democratic and disaffected young people, I'm not so sure, but I do think it'll it'll lead to some uh, vote uh, recalibration among people who are sort of in the middle of the spectrum. 
On the other hand, in the negative column for Biden, there's one other thing to worry about that might have that is happening in the next year, and that is third party candidates, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., Cornell West. We've talked about them here before. And now no labels is on the ballot in 12 states, including battleground states, Arizona, North Carolina, and Nevada. And they're trying to get on the ballot in dozens more states. They say the no labels party intends to nominate what they call a unity ticket with a Republican at the top and a Democratic running mate. The fact that they're on the ballot in swing states is somewhat ominous for Biden, don't you think? Uh, it is. Uh, th this gets very complicated because that creates a possibility that there will be three candidates not of the Democratic or Republican Party running for president, as you mentioned, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., uh, who seems to be taking a little more away from the Trump column than he is from the uh, Democratic column, from the Biden column, because of his conspiracy theory, uh, Mishigas, a technical political <laughs> science term. Yes. Um, Cornell West, who can certainly take away uh, disaffected voters on the left, uh, if unless they're scared completely by the uh, prospect of a, of a Trump presidency, which I'm sure a number of them will be. Uh, and then the no labels, which, you know, I mean, the, the, the irony of no labels is sort of they've been out there beating a drum for a long time about running a, a third party candidate. And now they've kind of been eclipsed already by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. I mean, they're not... Uh, the only alternative in town. And I think that reduces in some ways the significance of, of what they're doing. Now, it's very interesting that they say they'll put a Republican on the top of the ticket and a Democrat on the bottom. That suggests maybe taking more votes away from Trump than from Biden. It also suggests that they have not yet, and have not, maybe not, period, lured in Joe Manchin, uh, who would obviously only accept a position at the top of that ticket, which then also suggests that Joe Manchin in, in a development, much as I can't stand Joe Manchin, but in a development that augurs a little better for Democrats than not, will seek re-election in West Virginia uh, to the Senate. So, uh, you know, this is a five-dimensional chess if, if they go, go through with this, and nobody has a very uh, great, uh, you know, record betting on who comes out atop five-dimensional chess. Uh, certainly I don't, but uh, we will see what happens. Yeah, one of the hard parts of playing this kind of five-dimensional chess is getting on the ballot, which is very difficult in some states and less difficult in other states. As far as I know, Cornell West is running for the Green Party, which is mostly not on the ballot in the important states. And Robert F. Kennedy Jr., is he on the ballot in any states right now? I don't know that he is, but Cornell West left the Green Party, remember. Oh, uh, I'm behind. You're so right. It's hard yes, to keep up yeah, with no, Cornell West has put himself in a box of his own creation. He was originally running as the candidate of the People's Party. Then he switched to the Green Party. Now he's apparently, you know, having jettisoned his previous campaign managers, including Dennis Kucinich. Now he is running uh, as the nominee of the Cornell Party, which is not on the ballot anywhere. So it gets, it gets, you know, uh, uh, stranger and stranger as we approach, as we approach uh, next year's election. Then again, I, I need to say that the uh, elections this week showed, you know, a very clear path for how, in general, Democrats can be elected. 
The New York Times poll asked one other fascinating question. They asked about a race without Joe Biden. What if an unnamed Democratic candidate ran against Donald Trump? They found that would shift the race by 12 points, turning a four-point Democratic deficit against Trump into an eight-point lead. An unnamed, unnamed Democratic candidate would beat Trump 48 to 40. What do you make of that? Well, to begin with, uh, to, to sound the obligatory cautionary note, unnamed candidates always do better than actual living, breathing candidates with names uh, because, you know, they can be attacked uh, for X, Y uh, or Z, including just being living, breathing and having a name. Uh, and they will be. Uh, but it, it does suggest, particularly if you contrast all of these polls with the election results we've seen in the last week, it does suggest that other Democrats would fare better than Joe Biden uh, if they could emerge as the Democratic Party nominee. Dean Phillips, a little-known Democrat from my hometown of the Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota, has entered the New Hampshire primary to challenge Joe Biden there. Obviously, he is thinking about another Minnesotan, Eugene McCarthy, uh, who ran in the New Hampshire primary challenging LBJ in February 1968. He came close to winning. The result of that, I'm sure you remember, was that LBJ announced he was withdrawing from his own reelection campaign. Do you think something like that could happen? Or do you think the Democrats will, could persuade Joe Biden to withdraw before then? Or, or what? Well, let, let's separate Dean Phillips from the, this argument, because Gene McCarthy, on whose campaign I was one of the youngest actual staff members at age 18, uh, Gene McCarthy was running as the candidate of a massive anti-war movement uh, which uh, probably encompassed a majority of the party, but you know there were no, there were hardly any primaries in those days, and so a majority didn't matter for much. Dean Phillips is not running on anything in particular, except that he's not Joe Biden, which is not really a political tendency of sufficient weight to get anywhere. The question, you know, I mean, it's interesting when McCarthy first declared this was because the anti-war forces led by a guy named Allard Lowenstein have failed to get Robert Kennedy, who was sort of the obvious challenger into the race. So not only did Johnson withdraw once he saw the New Hampshire primary result, but Robert Kennedy said, oh my God, I got to get into this. <laughs> yes. uh, and, and so, you know, the question is, is, is not Dean Phillips. It's, is there anybody who looking at, on the one hand, democratic success, not just in the polls as the abstract, you know, unnamed Democrat, but in all of the elections over the past year, looking at that and you know saying, well, uh, I don't, I don't think Biden can make it. Much as I really kind of like his program and I think he's done a really good job, but uh, I'm going to get in, and it have to be someone with political heft. So let us let us look at some of those names to fill the blank for the unnamed Democratic candidate: Kamala Harris, Gavin Newsom. Would you like to continue? Yeah, uh, uh, two Midwestern governors, Gretchen Whitmer in uh, uh, in Michigan and uh, Mr. Pritzker uh, in uh, in Illinois, and you know, frankly, as of last night, uh, outside prospect uh, Andy Bashir in Kentucky, who uh, managed to uh, eviscerate the Republicans in a, in, in a one of the w most Republican states in the in in the country 
by defending abortion rights. And, you know, he survived being attacked for vetoing anti-transgender legislation and uh, who's, you know, unlike most Southern governors, supports unions. I mean, you know, there's there's a host of governors out there, uh, each with pluses and minuses. Uh, and uh, time is, as they say, a wasting. Time is a wasting. Harold Meyerson, readamitprospect.org. Harold, thanks for talking with us today. Always good to be here, John. the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. We need to talk more about Israel in Gaza. In particular, what is Israel's plan for after the war? Before this war, Israel tried two radically different strategies in Gaza, and neither succeeded. For that history, we turn to Fintan O'Toole, he teaches at Princeton, he's a columnist for the Irish Times, and he's the advising editor at the New York Review, where he's been writing about Israel, Hamas, and Gaza. His most recent book, We Don't Know Ourselves, A Personal History of Modern Ireland, was published in the U.S. last year. We talked about it here. We reached him today in Princeton. Fintan O'Toole, welcome back. Thank you very much, John. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, we're speaking on Monday, November 6th. In Israel, the toll from the Hamas attacks on October 7th, which is now one month ago, is 1,300 dead, mostly civilians, at least 3,300 wounded, and 242 hostages are being held right now by Hamas in Gaza, according to the IDF. In Gaza, the IDF has killed more than 10,000 Palestinians, according to the Gaza Health Ministry, including 4,100 children. Is that enough for Israel? In your piece for the New York Review, you recall that the word enough was stressed by Israel's prime minister in 1993, Yitzhak Rabin, at the signing of the Oslo Accords with the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization. Remind us what Rabin said. Rabin, it's also worth remembering, was a soldier. You know, he, he was a military man. He indeed was one of Israel's most distinguished and, and effective soldiers. Uh, you know, he, he was crucial to, ironically, to the taking of Gaza uh, in the Six-Day War and, and, and of the West Bank, indeed. And he was somebody who had, I think he had a gun in his hand from the time he was 16. You know, he, he had no compunction about using violence, but... He made two remarkable speeches. Um, one was uh, at the time of the announcement of the Oslo Accords in '93, and, and the other was when he was accepting uh, the Nobel Peace Prize in '94. In his '93 speech, as you said, John, he 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 made a rhetorical point of of repeating and emphasizing this word "enough." We've done these things to each other. We've done them over and over again enough. You have to be able to say enough at some point. And, uh, and in his Nobel Prize speech, uh, which I think probably contributed to his, his murder shortly afterwards, he talked about making decisions when you're going to send people out to kill and die, um, which he had done 
many, many, many times. And he said, you know, you, 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 you do these things and then there's a moment of silence after you've made the decision in which you start thinking about the mothers who were going to wake up the following day without their kids. You know, you, you, you start thinking about the consequences of all of this. And he said, in that moment of silence, while the clock is ticking towards the inferno, you have to think about, was there an alternative? You know, was there something else I could have done? And it, it, it's a really important moral distinction, you know, just that, that, that process of agonizing about how you use violence and to what end. And th this seems to me to be the critical question at the moment. Thinking about what Israel's end game is in Gaza isn't just an abstract thing for the day after, as it's being called. You, you cannot calibrate your means if you don't know what the end is, right? So even if you say, well, the end justifies the means, which is debatable, you have to know what the end is. You have to have a sense of that before you can have any kind of you know, moral calibration of, of, of how much is too much, when is enough enough. And, and it's it's so obvious from the outside that, that Israel has, has no sense of, of what the end is here. And it has no sense of it because, as you said, it's already tried two big strategies, both of which have collapsed. Well, let's talk about the first of those two big strategies, which was military rule of Gaza by Israel, which began with the Six-Day War of 1967, uh, lasted for 40 years. This is after Gaza had been a distinct place for, you know, millennia. Gaza was a city and then a, a, a refugee camp. Yeah. Uh, and then in 1967, with the Six-Day War, Israel established direct military rule. How did that work? And why did the Israelis decide to, to give it up in 2005? Yes, indeed. I mean, this was the sort of the classic historical orthodoxy of what you do when you take territory, right? You, you, you conquer it and you colonize it, you know, and... and Israel did indeed try to do that. It conquered it fairly easily. Colonization didn't work out so well. And, and of course, it, it, it never was going to in, in this tiny strip of land where you, you had a, a smaller population back then, but you still had well over a million people. And you could not flood <laughs> that strip of land with Jewish settlers with, with any kind of rationality. So this was this was tried. But it 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 ended up with three thousand Israeli soldiers guarding about eight and a half nine thousand Israeli settlers. So one soldier for every three colonists. That's not sustainable, right? So even even with all the support that Israel gets from America and, and everywhere else, you just you just couldn't do it. And so of course uh, Israel had to come to the conclusion that that this was this was not viable. And then unilaterally withdrew from Gaza. Terrible political mistake. If if at that time it had actually negotiated and talked to the people of Gaza about okay, what is the future? We're we're making a big decision here. That could have been sold as a huge concession, you know, as a real opening up to some kind of 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 joint future. But uh, politically, it, it seemed easier to say, "No, this is this is our unilateral decision." And of course, then it was followed not long afterwards by Gaza winning the elections on the blockade. And there's one other factor in 
Israel's pullout from, from Gaza in, in 2005, the Israeli settler movement has always distinguished between Gaza and the West Bank. Right-wing Zionists have always said the West Bank should be part of Israel. Uh, the, the Likud Party Charter, 1977, says, between the sea and the Jordan, there will be only Israeli sovereignty. But they never claimed that Gaza should be part of that, and that's because the right-wing Zionists read the Bible to say that God wanted the Jews to live in what they call Judea and Samaria, the West Bank. But apparently God never told the Jews they should live in Gaza. God gives them very confused messages, doesn't he? <laughs> in, particularly in that part of the world. But of course, um, many of the Israeli settlers, I mean, some of them pulled out voluntarily. But if you if you remember, we had those extraordinary scenes whereby the Israeli army had to go in and, and forcibly remove some of the some of the settlers so so there there, there was e e even i think you're, you're absolutely right what you say but even so there was still this kind of apocalyptic thing that what we have we hold we we we've conquered this territory and and we ought to be able to occupy it and even though there was so far as i've read overwhelming support in israel for the pullouts people realized this was you know why why were their kids at risk um and and sometimes being shot as as israeli soldiers to protect this relatively tiny settlement very quickly after the evacuation of Gaza by the Israelis, of course, then you then get the classic right-wing story of betrayal, of, of you know the idea that um, these were people who had gone soft and 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 had allowed this place um, to to become a menace to Israel, and that that uh, that's been there uh, as a sort of toxic myth for quite a long time. The immediate follow-up to the Israeli pullout was internationally monitored elections where Palestinians, the only vote the Palestinians have ever had, where they uh, had to choose between Fatah, a secular socialist organization that had led the Palestinian movement for decades, this was under Yasser Arafat, and Hamas, which was of course an Islamic fundamentalist movement that refused to recognize the Oslo Accords, had carried out terror attacks against Israel. And in that election, supposedly, a fair election, according to the international monitors, Hamas got a few more votes than Fatah. And, and as, as you said, Hamas took over control of Gaza, kicked out the PLO and Arafat, which then established their headquarters with the help of the Israelis in Ramallah. And you say this second period of Hamas rule of Gaza was what you call the real alternative to military occupation and colonization for Israel. Please explain why you say that. So uh, it's it's pretty clear if you if you if you read the history and 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 also you look at the evidence of Israel's repeated wars on Gaza since then that it was this extraordinary strategy. I mean, it is it is quite difficult to get your head around, but actually very explicit. I mean, there's no great mystery about it, which was that Israel had so so while it was. While Gaza was under Israeli military occupation, the military government had started to actually put money into the Muslim Brotherhood. So the Muslim Brotherhood is the parent organization of, of, of Hamas. It was banned, of course, by the Egyptians, while the Egyptians were, were uh, ruling Gaza. Uh, it was brought back to life, as it were, by Israel and funded and encouraged, even though, I mean, it, it's its charter... Is is hair-raisingly anti-Semitic, the, the worst kind of fundamentalist jihadism that you can you can imagine. 
But the strategy was, well, actually, this splits the Palestinians. And the, the mainstream of Palestinian politics was understood to be the PLO. So you get this alternative to the PLO. Well, particularly after Hamas took control of Gaza, this is seen as a good thing because it, it completely undermines it as a, as a political movement. And so you're able to say, well, we would love to have negotiations. We'd, we'd love to be you know, involved in peace process, but look at these people. We can't, we can't do it. Netanyahu in particular, this strategy is on him. I mean, he's not, he's not the only one, but he has been the person in power uh, while this strategy has, has, has been implemented. And in military terms, it, it's, it's an extraordinary strategy. So, so because what this meant, remember, was, was going to war repeatedly with Hamas, but with the aim of le- leaving Hamas in power. So the, the military strategy was this, this horrific phrase, which people I'm sure have heard, which is mowing the lawn. You know? yeah. So you, 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 you let Hamas get on with doing what it does and controlling Gaza. You know that as part of that, it's, it's, it's going to build up its, its arsenal of, of, of rockets. It's going to fire the rockets at you. You then go in and attack Gaza, but you make sure to leave Hamas in place. Uh, so the lawn is to be mowed. The lawn is not to be dug up. And of course, repeatedly in this, the main casualties as we're seeing now, where civilians, ordinary Gazan children and women pay the price for this strategy, but that's that's regarded as an acceptable price to pay. And it's sort of built in that you're going to do this every so often, right? Because you want to control Hamas, but you want to leave it in power. That crazy, crazy strategy, of course, collapsed in the most horrific way with the most appalling consequences for Israeli civilians on October 7th. And now, uh, as we speak, the IDF is about to start fighting in Gaza City, urban warfare. The U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin reminded the Israelis of what will happen, what's likely to happen next, what the what happened to American forces in the Iraq War that fought ISIS in Mosul. This was in starting in 2016. Mosul not terribly different from Gaza City in its population and its defense. The United States, of course, eventually won, in quotes, but it took 100,000 soldiers, mostly Iraqi soldiers, and Amnesty International reported that 10,000 civilians were killed in the Battle of Mosul. Coalition forces, United States and most, Iraq mostly, reported 8,200 of their own soldiers were killed. Uh, the siege of Mosul lasted eight months, started in October 2016, right about this time of the year, and it lasted until July 2017. And the Israelis know about this. Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant said last week, this new phase of its war against Hamas may last for, quote, months, close quote. And he conceded that uh, it will be, quote, insufficient on its own to fully uproot Hamas. So this takes us back to our opening subject. What is enough? Are they going to kill another 10,000? Will that be enough? And of course, when the Israeli leaders are asked about this, they, they don't have an answer. The United States this week, uh, last week, 
seems to have an answer. Uh, at the beginning of the week, Haaretz ran a photo of Secretary of State Anthony Blinken shaking hands with Mahmoud Abbas, president of the Palestinian Authority. And the headline uh, in Haaretz was, Abbas to Blinken, Palestinian Authority willing to control Gaza as part of a diplomatic solution, close quote. But then on Monday, a new report said Abbas made it clear to Blinken that the PA's entry into Gaza would be a difficult step that may present him as Israel's ally, close quote. You consider this possibility in your piece for the New York Review. You know, I'm, I'm just trying to analyze it as objectively as I can from the outside, but it, it just seems to me to be completely insane. Israel has spent 20 years undermining the Palestinian Authority making it weak, making it seem contemptible in the eyes of most Palestinians, uh, taunting it, showing it to be unable to protect ordinary Palestinians on the West Bank, even as we speak. You know, we've had these, these terrible, terrible attacks, terror attacks, basically, on, on ordinary civilians on the West Bank, and the Palestinian Authority can do nothing about it. How do you think that you can render an organization contemptible in the eyes of its own people? And then say, oh, we need you now. <laughs> you know, come in and 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 rescue us from this hellhole. Take over a, a place that's that's going to be just unimaginable. You know, blood-soaked rubble. With as you were saying, John. I mean, God, how many people dead? I mean, how many? Is it ten? Is it twenty thousand? I mean, we, we don't know. With a completely traumatized population. With um, no healthcare system, you know, presumably that's going to have been destroyed. No physical infrastructure working. Um, no education system working. Uh, no political institutions working. And so you, you're you're going to take this very institution, Palestinian Authority, that you've 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 kind of rendered so weak, uh, and then you're going to say, oh, ride in on the back of a, of an Israeli tank, and 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 you can govern this now <laughs> on our behalf. I mean, it, it 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 just makes no sense whatsoever. And you would think the Palestinian Authority knows this. The only way in which it makes sense, the only tiny way you could see that there might be a way that this would make sense, is if it were part of a very radical political process, which which also involved, you know, that, that this was a very clear step towards the establishment of a Palestinian state. Th then you could see some credibility for the Palestinian Authority to come and say. Yes, we are doing this, but it's a prelude to the creation of Palestinian state, which is going to include Gaza and the West Bank. But Israel has no intention of doing that, or certainly the current, the Netanyahu government has absolutely no intention of doing that. Uh, well, there, there are two other solutions, that so-called solutions that have, you know, seem to be floating around from, from, from the papers you read. W one is that there would be there would be ethnic cleansing, basically. I mean, that's, you know, there are clearly people in the Israeli government, I mean, these are the people who, in Rabin's time, were the the crazies, you know, screaming in the in the keyhole. You know, I mean, they were the, the mad, mad people. They're in government now, and there's a very substantial um, constituency there who want to see, uh, basically, you know, drive the Gazans out into this uh, out into the Sinai Desert, let Egypt take care of them, and we will we will control Gaza then because there'll be nobody there except us, uh, and we will do the same thing in in the West Bank. Leave aside the sort of moral horror of that, you know, which would be would be considerable. Um, it, it, it's completely unfeasible because 
bad as the so-called international community is in all of this, it simply can't allow that to happen because it would lead to a complete implosion of the of the Middle East. It would lead to to war between states on a on, a, on an enormous level, and, and and that just can't be done. So that strategy makes no sense whatsoever. And then the, the one, the other one that's kind of been mooted is that some sort of international coalition is going to step in, you know, uh, a coalition of Arab countries or, I mean, some some of the papers that we've seen leaked from Israeli government sort of talking about, you know, America, Britain and France are, are going to go in and send their troops into Gaza. I, I mean, this is just not going to happen, you know, and, and all of this is about we create this 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 horror and then leave it to somebody else to try and sort it out. Uh, it, it, it just does not seem to me to be any kind of rational thinking attached to that. Fintan O'Toole, he wrote about No Endgame in Gaza for the New York Review. Fintan, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livinginthusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Mm-hmm.